Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Hockey Noir, the multimedia opera. This is from Continuum Contemporary Music. This is a live performance, people. It's about the classic Toronto-Montreal hockey rivalry in the 50s. It has it all. Organized crime, lust, scandal, blood, and betrayal. There are three shows, May 10th and 11th, at the Jane Mallet Theatre in Toronto. You can find out more about this at continuummusic.org, and you'll get 20% off with the promo code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Paytm. Paytm, the best place to pay all of your bills in one place and to get cash back for doing so. Paytm is bringing rewards, cash back to bill payment. Why just enjoy that on your credit card purchases? Why not get that every time you pay a bill? What I'm saying is use Paytm because it'll benefit you when you get 50% cash back on things like, I don't know, a Tim Hortons gift card or 10% back from SO, 100% cash back on Apple AirPods. It's as good as cash. Go to paytm.ca. Evan Balgord. Hey, Jesse. Journalist, freelancer for Canada Land and other places. Yep. Author. Welcome back. I'm happy to be here. We are going to talk today about the lesser Canadian version of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It will never offend you because you have never heard about it. I haven't. We will discuss the outcome of the Steve Pakin thing. 
Somebody got doxxed. Outcome? I don't think that we've reached an outcome on it yet, yeah, but we'll get into that. still in play. <laughs> and we are going to discuss the CBC's exclusive investigation into a one-year-old Vice investigation. I think that's a fair way to put it, yeah. Glad to have you here, Evan. Glad to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Nissa Fry, Scott Oberg, Stephanie Betts-Williston, Mary-José Blaze, Natalie Smith, Kristen Pauly, Amy Ongaro, and Karen Hainstock. I'm a national media account coordinator based out of Toronto. I support Candleland because it's about time I learned where my biases and blind spots are and start thinking critically about what media I trust and whose messages I support. And this episode is brought to everybody by FreshBooks. Evan, you freelance? Oh, I use FreshBooks. That's how I charge you. Excellent. How are we doing? Do you, like, you probably can, you know, this might be embarrassing for me. You've got a bunch of different clients. You freelance for a bunch of different places. How are we with the payments? Much better than average. I like hearing that. I would like to think that I pay everybody the same timeline as quickly. doesn't matter if you send me a Microsoft Word invoice or FreshBooks. I mean, that is sort of how we try to do things But that's not true, is it? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I would have to, I, I need the data. I may have an unconscious bias here. I do know that when I get a FreshBooks invoice, it just feels more serious. It feels like the freelancer takes himself more seriously. And more than that, more than the aesthetics of this very nice looking invoice, I know that they get a notification that I've looked at the damn thing Mm -hmm. and suddenly I'm on the clock. You know, (laughs) I can't pretend it got slipped through the cracks. I have to pay the thing. I've seen this on the other side. When I started using FreshBooks, I started getting paid a lot quicker. And that's just one of the benefits. It saves you a ton of time when you're putting your invoices together or tracking your expenses. It saves you time at tax time. So check out FreshBooks, the founding sponsor of Canada Land, and you can use it for free for 30 days, no credit card required when you go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land and tell them that Canada Land sent you. Evan, you know what I want to start with because I feel like this has just been totally overlooked and it's about time somebody talked about it is the White House Correspondents Dinner last week. Michelle Wolf, you heard of this? What happened? I have. I watched the set. And I got to say, as somebody who watches a lot of, you know, stand-up comedy on Netflix and a lot of that stand-up comedy not being very good, you know, there are actually parts of this set that were pretty funny. It starts out, like, pretty funny and pretty strong. I think what everybody's criticizing is one particular 30-second segment where she does tilt pretty hard against uh, the White House press secretary. Of course, we have just been awash in a discussion of nothing but this really, really painful, awkward, and I think wonderful uh, set that she did. And the emphasis has been on her criticism of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, which I think is just totally fair game what she said. And I think it's a complete misrepresentation to say that she was uh, going after her for her appearance. It's not really true. No, um, it's... But you know, other people have made this point point made it thoroughly. I think what I want to talk about with you, Evan, is the larger conceit of this tradition in America of this White House Correspondence Dinner. Which is supposed to celebrate, you know, the First Amendment and press freedom. That's their stated goal. And I think that there's even like a larger ambition to this thing. And that is this conceit that like you in government and we in the press... Mm -hmm. Every other day of the year, we're adversaries. We're at each other's throats. We're holding you accountable. You're trying to get your message across to us. We're fighting. We're fighting. But one night, can't we dress up nice, clean up, and share a laugh? We'll hire a court jester to roast (laughs) us both, and we'll show that we have senses of humor about ourselves. And we'll take the hits and we'll do so in this sort of like one night armistice in the name of freedom of speech. I think that's the ideal of this thing is that it's this is one night that is unlike any other night. Of course. And Trump didn't go. I mean, I understand there's a tradition of of the sitting president attending these things. 
Is this the first time a president has not gone? It was not the first time. It was, in fact, the third time in recent memory. And I understand the most recent other time was, of course, last year when Trump didn't come. But there was one other president who didn't show up and sit there and take shit from a comedian. And that was Ronald Reagan. And he had a pretty good excuse. He had just been shot. Yeah. So unless you're shot or Trump, you go and you sit there <laughs> and you take abuse from a comedian. And I remember it's it's always there's always the sense of surprise. Like, oh, my God, look at this painful footage of them just sitting there and absorbing these. It's not like a stand up set where everyone's laughing like this. It's always uncomfortable. It's a and cringy. It's a roast. Yeah, it's what it is. And I remember like Don Imus, the shock jock, making sex jokes to Bill Clinton's face, like I think during the Lewinsky thing. This is an American tradition. There are cynics out there who would say, this is bullshit. It's a bullshit premise. It's a bullshit premise that government and the press are adversaries. You're essentially colleagues in the same industry. The government exploits and spins the press. The press exploits the government for ratings. Uh, there's a revolving door where you hire from the same pool of people. You trade jobs, you trade favors. And, you know, I think that cynics who believe that might say, and they have been saying, that the White House Correspondents' Dinner should be abolished because it perpetuates this false idea that these two groups are actually adversarial. Can I nitpick on something here? Yes. I don't like it when people refer to the media or the news as a monolithic thing. And I'm sure I'm guilty of doing this at times too, but... You know, in judging, you know, certain outlets, certain journalists, how they interact with the government, that relationship would be different, you know, person to person, journalist to journalist, editorial stance to editorial stance. And I think, you know, it is possible to both have like a collegiate relationship with somebody that you are going to hold accountable if you're kind of both those kind of people that can put your swords down at the end of the day and realize you're both playing a role. I think I think that's a possibility. Yeah. However, it's an individual individual thing. Well, you know, I like that cynical read of it. There's aspects of that I think are absolutely right. And I think, in fact, that's actually what Michelle Wolf said. You know, forget her comments about Huckabee Sanders. She called out the media. Oh, it was. Yeah. And in, in like a really scathing way. Why I like the White House Correspondents Dinner and why I think it is a fine tradition worth upholding is that even if it's true that these are essentially people in the same industry and there's nothing strange about them rubbing elbows. The fact that the only way that they can do that is to subject themselves to this like televised public scrutiny where someone like Michelle Wolf excoriates them and in doing so has done something that the press couldn't do. Like in doing so, she's actually a better reporter or columnist because we finally are talking about, the American media is finally talking about because the press acted so cowardly in throwing her under the bus afterwards. We're finally realizing just how cowed the press is yeah. to Trump. Well, I mean, she had the courage to call white nationalists neo-Nazis when 95% of the organized press lacks the courage to do so, despite all evidence. Yes, I, I love that this, I love that she embarrassed the press. I love that she embarrassed Trump and exposed that he's too much of a coward to sit there and take it as every other president had the guts to do. And we can talk about this in the American context because even as flawed as this is, and the conceit might be kind of predicated on a lie, it all happens in public and all the dynamics are there and you watch it in this way that's not exactly like watching a fun Netflix comedy special, but it's sort of enjoyable in the most dirty and painful <laughs> way. Why am I talking about this with you on Canada land? Because you have a Canadian example of some kind of correspondence dinner thing that I don't think anybody's heard of. I do have a Canadian angle, a legitimate Canadian, not a forced Canadian angle. And a lot of people don't know that there's a Canadian angle. But in fact, there are two Canadian equivalents, which I, if I'm not mistaken, were actually created in the image, the, the lesser Canadian versions of the White House correspondence dinner. One is the parliamentary press gallery annual dinner. And the other is actually happening next week in Ottawa, and that is politics and the pen. Every year, there is a formal gala in Ottawa where politicians, government figures, and the press get together, rub elbows, but there is no comedian. There's no roast. However, there is comedy. <laughs> 
with known Canadian funny man, former global political journalist Tom Clark. Okay. Roll clip. Well, Tom, I need you to find me a ticket to politics in the pen. A ticket to politics in the pen. Listen, why don't you ask me to do something simple like find out where Stephen Harper is? That's easier. Justin Trudeau is said to be the coolest person in a room. But it's easiest to be... The coolest when you're in the same room as John McCallum and Stéphane Dion, isn't it? Yeah, fair enough. Wise choice, Rupert. Listen, pass on our best to everybody for their sponsorship of uh, Politics in the Pen. It really does make a world of difference to us all. What is it that news anchors know more about than anybody else? Hair. Well, except for Peter Mansbridge, but the rest of us know about hair. And if you send me yeah. to Washington, I will grab Trump by the... If you want to go on YouTube and look at these things, they have the last three years of videos that they play at the gala where they do shtick and there's like 87 views per video, 100 (laughs) views, and there's like MPs make appearances. It's very much in the vein of the Rick Mercer School of Comedy of like, Mm -hmm. let's show that we're all palling around with each other. Everyone's acting terribly. It's wooden. Everyone's paunchy and middle-aged. The jokes are awful. They're designed not to be very offensive. And it really embodies, like this is my perfect lesser Canadian version example here of the White House Correspondent Center versus politics in the pen. And even in their stated goals, we talked about this earlier, the White House Correspondents Association calls that dinner a unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous and free press. That's why they do that dinner. Here is why the Writers' Trust does Politics in the Pen. A grand celebration of Canadian political and literary cultures. Like, let's celebrate our political culture and let's celebrate Can Lit. But it's got a journalistic focus. They give a prize to a nonfiction book. And, you know, Carol Off is up for the award for her book about uh, a reporter's journey in Afghanistan. There's a book about Robert Bond, the greatest Newfoundlander. There's Tanya Talaga's wonderful book about Thunder Bay. Uh, there's a book about Mackenzie King's secret life. So it's a gala where they pat these journalists on the head for their fine literary work. The journalists aren't even in those videos. Like, the videos are just kind of like, with the exception of Tom Clark, who's no longer a journalist, it's the the sponsors. It's like Microsoft and, like, these major banks and, you know, palling around with government officials, right? So, you know, it really so you're is— You're essentially calling it a lobbying dinner. The fact that the press shows up to be pandered to and patronized. I remember having Susan Delacourt on the show, and she says, I don't go to that fucking thing. I don't know if she swore it like that, but she—, she like, <laughs> Because it's unseemly. It'd be one thing if it was like, we're all friends, we're all on equal footing. But in Canada, it's not at all. Like it's, it's totally about the political class and the business class. And then they give these, like, some small cash award to the nonfiction, the journalists. You know, like, there's not even, like, the appearance. In the States, they at least have to pretend— that this is some kind of celebration of freedom of speech. And every now and then a comedian is like, oh, it's a celebration of freedom of speech? Well, here's what freedom of speech is actually about. And then something awesome happens. And here, this thing happens like in secret, basically. Look, I still don't think I know enough about this. And challenge to you, Jesse, why don't you commission some some young writer in Ottawa or, or from Toronto to go to this thing, report from it, and tell us what it is? Holy shit, you're a genius. And the, <laughs> our timing is impeccable. This is happening next Wednesday. We need a mole at Politics in the Pen. Okay, we're open for business. Send me your pitch. We'll make it worth your while. If you have a ticket to this thing, I want a report from Politics in the Pen. That's an armed U.S. paramilitary group called the Three Percenters, named after the 3% of colonists who are said to have taken up arms against the British during the American Revolution, something you'd only find in the U.S., right? Not exactly. 
An investigation done by the Weekly can reveal that the three percenters have come to Canada. Okay, Evan, there it is. You're actually in that report. Yes. You're interviewed in that CBC report. I don't know that they actually used the word exclusive. I was looking back and, I, you know, you never know now that this has become a thing if you're going to find where they did. But, but it certainly it was, it was packaged as an exclusive. Wendy Mesley was tweeting, an investigation done by CBC The Weekly can reveal that an armed U.S. paramilitary group called the Three Percenters have come to Canada. So I think right in there that CBC is revealing this is not accurate. No, that's not quite accurate. Mac Lamoureux from Vice finished an eight-month investigation into the three percenters in, uh, I believe, June of 2017. And I have referred to it several times in my reporting because it's a very good piece that he wrote, a very good investigation. And I do refer to that as kind of the definitive piece on the three percenters. There wasn't too much in that report, that you know, six-minute clip of their investigation that was new. However, I do understand they're also maybe working on a, a digital piece to supplement it that may move the story forward a bit. In fact, it was pointed out by Sean Craig and it was pointed out by Josh Fisler, the editor-in-chief of Vice Canada, that like it's one thing to kind of kind of revisit the same territory and we should build on each other's mm -hmm. stories. It's a little bit worse to not really acknowledge the work that's been done before you. But this almost goes even beyond that in that the most kind of evocative stuff that they were presenting where, you know, the CBC has obtained screenshots from the secret Facebook group of this paramilitary right-wing group. Vice had that. The stats that there are 150 to 200 members of the three percenters in Alberta, Mac had that for Vice as well. Like you could have, I don't know, maybe they independently, like I find it impossible to believe they weren't aware of Mac's work. And in fact, Wendy Mesley, she actually acknowledged Mac did wonderful work on this when she was called out for this. I think that's the extent of her acknowledgement of this is Mac's done great work on this. So they knew about Mac's work mm -hmm. and maybe they independently did the exact same work to come up with the exact same materials, but it could just as easily have been like just repackaging somebody else's work and calling it your own. I mean, it's kind of- I think genuinely they were trying to push it forward and do more of an investigation. I do look forward to like kind of what comes out in this digital piece I understand is going to follow it. I was speaking with the producer of the show and, and I think they have some new things to push that story forward and I don't want to scoop them here, but I am looking forward to that piece. That well, well, what is out. your understanding of how they, I mean, I don't think that they intended maliciously to steal anything and that you were interviewed so that you, they must have warned like, here's what we're doing. And yep. what's your perspective on just what happened? I've asked them publicly and privately, like, I want to represent your side of this. What the hell happened here? I've spoken to some former CBC journalists that have told me, you know, Kind of the editorial stance of CBC is if they can verify something and do their own investigation, they don't typically give credit to competitors. Uh -huh. And that it is, seems well, yeah. to have played out <laughs> <It's> here. Notorious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess there's sort of like a well-known notoriety among CBC for just being kind of like in terms of etiquette shitty and being kind of stingy with acknowledging work that's done elsewhere. This feels like it's a little bit further than that. I don't know. I appreciate that you're withholding judgment to see if anything more comes of this. I think it would be fair to call it an investigation and exclusive evidence if they bring something new. But I don't think there's anything new in the report we've seen so far. So TBD. It's really weird. I mean, the Weekly, first of all, is positioned as the CBC's new media criticism and media analysis show. I don't know how this story fits into that. Fine. We stray from our, our core thing and talk about all kinds of things. It's just like I would love to to know what happened behind the scenes there if they thought they had more than they did or sometimes it gets into a thing where you know a senior person wants to call it a certain thing and, and even though there may be voices uh, on the team saying well we probably should acknowledge i mean the damn report started with footage yeah that, that said it was credited from vice yeah, yeah I would, maybe they're gonna fall back on that and say no we did credit vice because like if you look at the, t the watermark in the top corner like they actually like they knew who did the story first yeah. i don't know this is inside stuff that you know I, like to what degree the public i mean you you cover the far right and i the, the more light we shed on this kind of very uh, yeah, alarming. I, I just love that people are doing stories on it. But, you know, if I was in Vice's position in 
max position, I would understand feeling a little sour. I think that there is a larger question here that the CBC has been kind of trying to not deal with for years. Uh, and I think that the way the currents are moving in Canadian news is just like, they're going to have to get some clarity on this, which is who are you with relation to your colleagues in the rest of the media? Within the CBC, I'm aware that they talk openly about crushing the competition. They're in like races for exclusives. You know, I mean, everyone likes to have stories first and to break big stories. We try to avoid things that we know other people are working on because, you know, there's so much that isn't getting covered. The Shattered Mirror report talks a lot about CBC taking on more of a partnership role, a collaborative role. I think there's been more murmurings about that since some of the changeover at the top levels of the CBC. But it's a cultural thing in news to be hyper-competitive, even to the point where you don't even acknowledge the existence, which is usually their default is that like, even if they have to acknowledge that something was reported elsewhere, they'll just say like on another network mm -hmm. and not name the network. There also seems to be like silos. I've been approached by, uh, you know, multiple different CBC journalists for information on background and and multiple different shows. And it doesn't seem that they were, you know, talking amongst each other about the, the stuff they're covering in my field before they came to talk to me. Yeah, that's uh, inter-CBC competition yeah. for scoops is, uh, is another big thing that, that goes on on the regular. I got to say, though, that wasn't actually the thing that annoyed me about the CBC clip, though. I was annoyed by one thing, and it's something I want to discuss with other journalists as much as possible, and it's how we characterize these groups. Uh -huh. And I tried to be very clear when I was speaking you know, with the Weekly, this is why it's an anti-Muslim movement, not an anti-Islam movement. So they use the term anti-Islam movement several times, even though they quoted the leader of the three percenters saying, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. Yeah. But they also let the three percenters and Bo kind of represent himself saying, you know, w he says we're not anti-Islam. Even in, in an interview with Mac, he says we are against Islam and Muslims. So, you know, they're always kind of like misrepresenting themselves. And it sucks when I see, you know, other journalists and people in media letting that happen. They, yeah. they even reference another group, Worldwide Coalition Against Islam, as an anti-Islam group and specifically use a clip that has an individual, uh, Jesse Wilndega. He posts like 1488 or for the uninitiated, the 14 words relating to white supremacy and 88 stands for Heil Hitler yeah. and white power worldwide on his profile. And, you know, he's a neo-Nazi. And to characterize, you know, a group that has a VP who's a neo-Nazi as an anti-Islam group, I think, is also not getting at the truth of what it is. Well, this is sort of the, the first defense of all of these groups is like, hey, there's a long tradition of, uh, it's just in the spirit of debate, that we're allowed to criticize organized religion. People have criticized the Catholic Church. People mm -hmm. can criticize all sorts of orthodoxies. We criticize Islam. And that's, uh, it's even within a liberal, it's, that's the left's tradition. And that cover, if you just scratch it at like the slightest bit. No. Or just look at their public Facebook page. Like it just, that just disappears immediately. They've said otherwise. Yeah. So your point is well taken. Why allow, why should the media allow them space to perpetuate that? I think often it's just sort of like that little scratch that you do constantly, they haven't done even casually, you know, so it sounds reasonable. They, they know how to present themselves in the media and that's yeah. the face you want to put on. So I think it's a resource thing and it's a lack of research thing. Yeah. And uh, I hope to get more awareness out around it. Final thing I want to say about this is just about accountability. Like, you know, I think that to whatever extent it's permissible at different times for CBC either to engage with my criticisms or ignore me, notwithstanding, uh, you know, how that all plays out. The editor-in-chief of a rival news organization or of a different news organization explicitly called them out about this. Josh Visser, uh, whatever criticism I have about Vice, he is the editor-in-chief of another news organization and he point by point took apart how their story mirrored theirs exactly. And as I speak right now, they have not responded to him at all. I think he also did it kind of in a, in a classy way. And, you know, I, I've heard from Mac that, you know, Josh often has their back in the newsroom and this seems to kind of carry forward with that. 
Hey, quick addendum here. Just Jesse, Evan's gone. The day has progressed, and Wendy Mesley has responded to this on Twitter, and I wanted to include her response. She wrote, By the way, we read your responses to last week's story on the three percenters. As many pointed out, Vice first reported on this 10 months ago, and Vice US allowed us to use a bit of their footage with credit. Vice has done good work on this story, and we are proud to have been able to advance the story with original journalism, revealing exclusive new details. We'll keep focused on this important topic moving forward. That's what Wendy Mesley said. I will interject only to point out that there is actually no apology in that. And it left me kind of curious what these exclusive new details are. Perhaps they are yet to come. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Evan, I would like to thank another sponsor we have today. It is a suitcase company. It is the maker of the suitcase that I take with me when I travel. I love this suitcase. Away. They've kind of like, they've solved something about the kind of travel. Like, I'm sure it's good for a lot of things. I use it for business travel. I use it for when you're taking the carry-on. It's like the suitcase is very versatile and it has an impact on like the well-being of my body. The, <laughs> the way that I'm able to, like the 360 wheels, the fact that I can kind of push this thing ahead of me or drag it behind me. It's like, you see people trying to use suitcases that aren't necessarily designed for this. Get your smaller carry-on on the bigger one. And often it's just not at the right height and it hurts people's bodies. This one was sort of like engineered with that kind of traveler in mind. And I use it after having an inferior suitcase, and I wax on about it whenever it comes up in our sponsorship list because I, I actually— I think the most important test, can it fit in those tiny overhead compartments of Air Canada Rouge? Yeah, it can, and those miserable Rouge flights. Oh, they're it, just the worst. It'll fit, and it's also like it's kind of indestructible. It's got a lifetime warranty, so you don't really care about jamming the thing in when you need to. It's got like a USB charger for your phone, which is a nice feature. So this is a good suitcase. It's the best suitcase for traveling I've ever had. You could try it out for 100 days, travel with it, see if you like it, return it for a full refund. If you don't, they will ship it to you for free. And you'll get 20 bucks off when you go to awaytravel.com slash Canadaland. Use the promo code Canadaland. 
Evan Balgord, you're no stranger to the format of our podcast called Shortcuts. You know that at a certain point in the program, we duly note that, which must be duly noted. Yep. What do you have? This was a tweet by Arshi Mann, who you had on, I think, really recently. And he covered the kind of incel, the van attack, and dug into what this incel subculture was and communicated that to a lot of Canadians. And he had this great tweet kind of when things started to quiet down. Even though over the last week, my tweets on incels were all over the internet, I didn't receive a single threat. Women bear the overwhelming brunt of this vitriol, harassment, and violence. I've had conversations about this with several other journalists, and I report on hate groups, and yet, despite that, you know, I don't get very much harassment or violence compared to women and people of color, both activist organizers and journalists that report on the same stuff. I mean, I spoke with Mac Lamaru from Vice, and, you know, we agreed we get, like, a hundredth of what women get. And I think we need to talk about this more because there is like this unfair brunt and, and consequence of doing like important reporting if you're a female in journalism, you know, around the world, but in Canada here too. Well, this is, I think, an excellent point that you're making. And it's one that I heard um, Justin examining on Oppo when he was say, looking at his own, not just the response to his journalism, but the fact that his journalism has been, you know, the amount of work he's done on jihadist terror and how little he's done on misogynistic violence in contrast. So these things are all of a spectrum. And I think that like that this conversation is moving to where male journalists and just sort of like men on the internet are becoming aware of what women go through. And it's a weird thing that I've been thinking about for some time now around how when we did away with certain types of sexist, gendered, institutionalized behavior, certain types, we also, I think, as men, ignored this this value that maybe had something to it, which is like, to what degree is it our responsibility to look out for assholes who hurt women? And, you know, it, can we play a role that doesn't kind of like go regressively backwards into like, I must protect women, but just out of like kind of an egalitarian sense of like, this is like just a person who I can't turn a blind eye to the way they're being treated. What role do I have just because it's coming at them? So I think, I don't know, I know that last time when I talked about it, I wish there were more resources and discussion of this. People pointed me to a few of them. So maybe it's something that we can discuss more on the show. But I want like, you know, a list of best practices for dudes on the internet so that you don't live in a bubble where you're unaware of the kind of shit that female journalists and just women with opinions in general are going through. And like, what is the protocol? And at uh, risk of being called a, a white knight cuck or whatever the fuck, how can we actually play a role in, 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 and in, in helping and changing the culture? And I'm sure several of those resources are out there. And you know what? I should have researched and and found some already, you know, after this episode, I'll go home and try to do a little research on, you know, what can we do about this? Yeah, at this stage of the game, I should know more than I do, but I'll, I'll make it my business to know more and talk about it more on the show. So uh, duly noted, Evan. I want to duly note another Justin Ling, big up, and I, it pains me, even though he is a host with our network, it causes me pain to compliment Justin Ling. He doesn't need the encouragement. He really doesn't. But on the most recent episode of Oppo, like Jen and Justin, I think are both excellent and unique interviewers and Jen's interviews are... <laughs> <laughs> incredibly aggressive. I find them delightful. I think that we need more of that. Justin's got game too. And I'm going to duly note a interview he did on this week's Oppo with Bill Browder, who is the guy behind the Magnitsky Act. I don't know about you, but as a person whose job is to be like news literate, there's still things that I just don't, I just hear the word again and again. And I'm just like, ah, I'm just gonna let that one go. And Magnitsky Act. It's the Russian sanction. It's the Russian sanction. I didn't know much about it until I heard this interview with Bill Browder. And it's a fascinating interview with a really candid guy who's kind of incredible. And it went from me being like, oh, I guess Justin just wanted to talk to this guy because he's like a guy of global importance who's behind this sanction thing, which is really, I'm not even gonna try to recap it. I think people should listen to it. But Justin's indulging himself 
himself because there's no Canadian angle. And then the Canadian angle starts to spool out. And it's the stuff about Christia Freeland that I had no idea about. And it goes to Irvin Kotler and Canada-Russian relations. It's just top notch. I learned a ton from this. And it's like just some some people lead really interesting lives and do really interesting things. So this is, uh, you know, halfway into this week's oppo. Go check it out. It's great. Duly noted. Evan, I want to talk with you about the Steve Pakin investigation. I don't know. Can you take a swing at summarizing what the outcome of this was, at least as far as uh, the outcome we know so far from TVO releasing the report? Uh, So through the process, TVO commissioned a a third party investigator, so an independent investigator to to look into their end. I think the very first thing that I kind of want to share as a takeaway here is that in this independent investigation, at no point did they say that Sarah Thompson was lying. And they took uh, her accusations, you know, on a fair basis that she honestly believed that this thing had happened. I want to kind of share that same sentiment before we go into what the report shares. However, um, it seems that the evidence that she kind of brought forward and the witnesses she was counting on to support her story backtracked in one case and in other cases, she was not able to document that evidence of certain events uh, having occurred. And to be a bit more specific, in 2010, uh, she alleges that she was at a lunch with Pakin and with who was named as Witness J in the report. Her executive assistant was present, was a, a witness to this alleged incident. Yes, and he's named as a Witness J in the in the report. So what she said happened was that Pakin propositioned her for sex at that lunch, um, and she understood that to be a prerequisite to get on his show Uh, which she wanted to do to further her political career, which, if true, is extremely problematic, obviously, of a person in power using their authority within our uh, journalism ecosystem to use that position of power and authority to to get women to have sex with him. However, the conclusion of the report is that this did not happen and TVO's, I guess, policies were not violated and no action will be taken against Pakin. That's a pretty good summary of the whole thing. I'll, I'll talk about this, I guess, from my perspective as somebody who has worked with Pakin and uh, I wouldn't call us friends, but we're friendly and I, I have a lot of respect for the guy. And he was, uh, you know, as I've said before, he was a very welcoming and generous figure when I worked at TVO. So that's my, I guess, disclaimer, disclaimer on this. It was uh, an interesting one for me because like a lot of people, I just thought like, there's just no way. There's like both in terms of Pakin's reputation and just how straight and narrow and Dudley Do-Right the guy is and how professional he is. My instinct was that like I had trouble believing that he would do this under any circumstances. And I also felt like the specific way that Sarah Thompson recounted this, that she was like that there was somebody sitting next to her to overhear the whole thing. And he says, you're going to have to have sex with me if you want to come on my show. And I do this all the time. I was just like, that's absurd that he would do that, that kind of self-destructive behavior from somebody who's so controlled and managed. And I didn't really express most of this at the time because who the hell cares whether I think that Steve Pakin is capable of doing this or not? And there are a lot of people who came forward, you know, be it like Joe Warmington or Christy Blatchford, like if Steve Pakin were in fact one of the men, and we know they exist, who do self-destructive, compulsive, absurd things when they act in sexually inappropriate ways then why would Joe Warmington know about it? Why would Christy Blatchford know? Why would I know about it? If, in fact, Steve Pakin did it, I wouldn't know about it. And so me vouching for him or just liking him and hoping it's not true is irrelevant. And I tried to keep my mouth shut about that. I think I did. And feeling kind of a certain amount of guilt because I know that a lot of people were rallying to his side. I just felt like I want to like look at this case as an example of where we're at in this Me Too conversation. Because here was a really unique case. And I felt like, is it possible to have respect for both the accused and the accuser 
as this process plays itself out. And for all the talk of like you people who are pro Me Too don't believe in due process, I was really feeling like, no, we got to hold back here on saying anything about this, even pro Pakin, even if that's how I'm feeling, because she says there was a witness there and we need to wait and see. I think that the allegations against against Bill Cosby sounded absurd and unthinkable. The allegations against Weinstein, you know, Mossad agents and just how brazen he was. I mean, to a lot of people, that would have sounded absurd. A lot of people found that the Gameshi allegations sounded absurd. And then as more and more people come forward, you realize that this absolutely abject and hard-to-believe behavior was accurate. So, uh, you know, I, I tried to keep my powder dry and let this play out. Now, what we got from the process— you're absolutely right, and I think that this has to be said about Sarah Thompson. There is no evidence that she lied, you know, that she that she knew she was saying something that wasn't true. It seems like she believes this from the start. That doesn't mean it happened. And the investigation failed to find Pakin guilty of anything because it's not substantiated. It all came down to this one witness, I believe. If somebody was sitting there and overheard something that explosive, you'd think that they would remember it. I largely did, and there's two sides to it. So the witness, witness J, did write an email to uh, Sarah Thompson, which was looked at and found to be legit. That does back up her side of the story. However, in interviews with the with this independent investigation, uh, witness J completely backtracks on that and they find him, you know, not to be credible. And in some places they they use language as to imply that uh, he was a, a people pleaser. Well, at this point, the witness is not back. Witness J is not backing up Sarah Thompson. He says explicitly that to the investigator, this did not happen. Steve Bacon did not proposition Sarah Thompson. That's what he's saying now. And there is this email that was verified as being sent at the time in question where he is singing a different tune and says that and wrote to Sarah Thompson, he seems so focused on trying to get you into bed with him and calls Pakin a pig in this email from back then. Where does the truth lie? As you get into this and as you read a lot of other stuff from this witness, Jay, and this is what the investigator found as well, it seems like it is possible to believe, and there's even evidence to believe, that this was a situation where Sarah Thompson was absolutely certain that this happened for some reason, and this person who was in a subordinate position to her kind of went along with it kind of went along with it and kind of backed her up. Like, can you believe he said that to me today? Like, oh, what a pig he was. And you just sort of big up your boss and get their back. And did I actually hear that? You know, you're in a position where you have every reason to just agree with your boss. And then later, years later, we have this transcript of a Facebook conversation between them. And this is the, an interesting nugget that I don't think I've heard discussed. After the investigation was released by TVO, clearing Pekin completely, Sarah Thompson's lawyer, Saba Ahmad, did what lawyers do when they lose. And, you know, we're, we're disappointed in this. Uh, we're disappointed that the investigator did not give weight to the email. But then she did something else. She posted public screen grabs of a Facebook Messenger conversation between Sarah Thompson and Witness J. And she exposed the name of Witness J. And in this Facebook transcript, well, the first thing that you'll notice is it is a recent transcript of Sarah Thompson trying to see, will my witness back me up? Do you remember that? Do you remember that email you sent me? Do you remember what Pakin said? And he says again and again, like, don't look at me. I, I'm not your witness for this. You know, I don't like he, he seems like, like he's, he's telling her, like, listen, I'm not your person who's going to back you up. And it goes beyond that. Included in these screen grabs is stuff where this witness, Jay, under his real name, is talking about his marital status and whether he loves his partner or not and what his thoughts are on romantic love. And that is included. It's included. Like the investigation uh, gives him anonymity. And then Sarah Thompson, what seems, and now she has, it's not just her lawyer. Sarah Thompson has released his name as well. It's like, you didn't back up my story and now we're doxing you. Now we're going to reveal who you are. And he's looking terrible in this thing because, you know, he's lying to somebody and you don't know who he's lying to. Even that 
doesn't mean that this didn't happen. Correct. Right. And, and I want to be very clear that this is an independent investigation. This has not gone before a judge or a trial and been, you know, gone through a due, a due process in court. So we can't say definitively, you know, what happened one way or the other. And I don't think that this is over yet. I mean, just this morning, Sarah Thompson posted on her site some new information. She says that she has a source, uh, a man who says that Pakin was sexting uh, his wife. She says that she has spoken to former TVO employees that uh, I understand are maybe one employee, maybe two that are she no longer- She quotes an email from somebody who doesn't want their name used yeah. saying, oh, Pakin's notorious for this. And again, this is either stuff that Sarah Thompson actually has in her possession from real people or she's just completely fabricating it. At this point, this is what we would call a story that is not firm enough for me to publish. And I yeah. think that Sarah Thompson, you know, obviously did not go forward with enough uh, to substantiate any aspect of this. So, you know, a lot of people are kind of turning it around on Sarah Thompson and Rosie DeMano and others are, are, you know, now it's, now you need to pay for your false allegation. Now that you've been proved a liar, you need to pay for this. Even the report, though, acknowledges that she honestly believes this thing. So I don't know if it's entirely fair to go after her on that basis. You you might say she brought this forward and, you know, she didn't have her evidence fully locked down or whatever. But but to say that she she totally fabricated this and made it up. We when, don't know that. We yeah, don't know we don't, that. And it's destructive because then what you're saying is if you come forward with an allegation and it doesn't go your way, now you're going to get destroyed, you know? Yes. And believe me, she is going to pay a high price for this, whether or not Rosie DeMano or other people ask for her head on a plate. Well, I think, I think Steve will as well. I mean, the question of this is for both of them who both feel that they are telling the truth in this case, honestly, you know, according to the impressions of the report. Where do we go from here? It's not something that's really possible to walk back. I think that this played out as it should have. And I think that uh, some people will think that I'm being, that you and I are both being ungenerous to Steve, like he's been cleared and here we're talking about new allegations from Sarah Thompson, who's already been proven to be not credible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we have to, given that there's no substantiation that Steve Pickens done anything wrong, there is a presumption of innocence at this point that we must extend to him. There's no reason to believe that there's truth to this. But a lot of the people who are uh, rushing to damn her, we have to keep, this is a painful, painful thing, you know, and I, I'm sure he went through hell throughout all this. I wonder if- I'm I'm sure she did as well. I'm sure she did as well, and, and and that's not done. I think he's okay. And, you know, Chrissy Blatchford had a tweet saying, you know, yes, he's been cleared, but but he's paid a tremendous cost. Well, what's the cost? I mean, I'm sure that he had a lot of sleepless nights. I'm sure he went through hell. But TVO kept him on the air. He went through this process. We have a result. His life, his position, his job, you know, there is th th this idea that all allegations end in the exact same thing, that every man is ruined, is not actually true. I'm sure he would rather have not gone through this. I just don't know what the alternative is because we have to leave a door open for people to make allegations. Well, you know? I don't think that we're ever going to be able to come to a definitive conclusion of what happened by the very nature of how this has played out. And this is what I think the lasting damage is. I think that people in dealing with Pakin in the future may be left with some niggling doubt in their mind and that will haunt him forever. And I don't know that that is possible to dismiss. And it certainly appears as though there has been a process through this by which to investigate it, though uh, Thompson, our lawyer, would take issue with, with some of the ways that that was done. And uh, yeah, I think that there will be some lasting lasting harm to Steve. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I guess there's this idea that the, the most precious thing that must be valued at all costs is that somebody's pristine reputation and that's to live your life with a cloud of suspicion over you. I don't really feel very differently about Steve Bacon. I don't feel like now, mm, you know, any more so than I feel like any person you meet is capable of things you don't know about. Yeah. 
you know? And I think if that's the cause, if that's what we're so afraid of, that we put so many disincentives for people, women being able to come forward, mostly women, I think it's okay. I think that like we can, we can allow that to be tarnished, not people. We shouldn't allow people's reputations to be absolutely destroyed. But, but the idea that there's something holy about our reputations that no one can cast the slightest doubt about, we might have to let go of that a little bit if there's going to be a possibility for things that need to come out. I mean, we've now seen again and again and again that most of the time when allegations like this happen, it's because it's true. Yeah. You know? Anyhow. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Evan, where can people find you? People can find me uh, on Twitter at ebalgord. Our website is canadalandshow.com. We publish original journalism on there that you will not have read first on Vice. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Editorial assistance by Olamide Olanian. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're gonna be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you gonna get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.